Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. Hi, Anna Greta. Great to be with you once again. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And um, my apologies for a slightly scratchy sound. I'm coming to you from Shepparton at the moment where I'm currently doing some research with children and young people. So the audio might not be perfect, but hopefully the research that we produce from this visit will be worthwhile. No, the work that you're doing at the moment, Sharon, is just so amazing. And a few weeks ago, I shouted out to listeners to read the amazing pieces that you've published in the conversation recently on on giving us some ideas about what children want from government and what children are looking for in, in the in the social security sector. Fantastic reads and and highly informative. And I think particularly informative for this series of conversations that we're having on Policy Forum Pod at the moment. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I think we mentioned last week that the Crawford School is hosting a series of online program information seminars from the 10th to the 13th of October. It'll be a great opportunity to talk to Crawford experts about the degree programs and the short courses that are on offer, particularly if you have an interest in the sorts of policy challenges that we commonly raise on this podcast. So visit crawford.anu.edu.au study for more information. We will, of course, leave a link in the show notes. So Sharon, what are we talking about today? So, Anna Greta, today we have the second in our bundle of episodes, as we're now calling them, on education. Last week we had a fantastic conversation with Professor Deborah Brennan and Dr Leonora Rees on early childhood education and care. And we heard in that conversation about the strengths of the early years learning framework in Australia. We heard something of the commitment of early childhood teachers, but we also heard about the many, many challenges. And we heard that one word can perhaps be best used to describe that system, and that is undervalued. The undervaluing of education and of teachers is not limited to the early childhood system in Australia. We hear alarmingly regular reports of the crisis facing the education system, of teachers leaving the profession, of being burned out and being exhausted. There are also a, a number of very serious questions about, about the extent to which the education system engages and supports children and young people. The challenges range from absences, with about one quarter of children in high school being absent more than 10% of the time. And those issues then range, range through to disengagement and to challenging behavioural issues. And some of those behavioural issues are also apparent in very well-resourced and elite schools. And yet very often, schools and more specifically teachers are handed responsibility for a range of issues that society generally finds too difficult to manage. Within all of these challenges facing the education system, inequity is particularly acute with state, territory and federal governments having made a commitment to 
for equity in education through the Melbourne Declaration and the Alice Springs Declaration, in practice, we still see that we're a long way from achieving educational equity in Australia. The OECD has noted that in Australia, social background is linked to school success. Children and young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are concentrated in schools with disadvantaged socioeconomic status, and low achievement is disproportionately concentrated among students from low-income backgrounds and also those in rural and remote and Indigenous communities. So we have a lot of challenges that we are facing within the education system in Australia. In this episode, we want to do a deep dive into how the education system, from early childhood education through to high school, plays out for children, young people and their families who are facing challenges of poverty and marginalisation or who are considered to be vulnerable. And to talk through these critically important issues with us, we are joined by two amazing guests, Dr Jennifer Scadavol and Professor Kitty Tereel. Jen, perhaps we could start with you. Thank you for having me here. I'm a child researcher and my focus is to bring children's perspectives to the policy that affects them. Uh, I've got a background in education, specifically in early childhood education, but I uh, work with children across the age range up to 25. So Kitty and I have, in fact, worked with some of the same groups, even though our backgrounds, teacher training is quite different. I am focused at the moment on uh, early childhood services that are in high poverty contexts and what makes those services able to deliver high quality education and care to the to their local constituencies. Fantastic. Thank you, Jen. And Kitty, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Sharon, and so lovely to be in this episode together with Jen. My research focus is on supporting children and young people to succeed in school when they often have the odds stacked against them. And in particular, I'm really interested in looking at the work of alternative or or second chance school settings for young people. And I'm currently working at the, the University of Tasmania, I am lead the research portfolio for the Peter Underwood Centre. It's hard to imagine two better guests to talk through some of these really complex and critically important issues. And I think it would be useful if we could begin just by setting the scene. And Kitty, perhaps to go first to you, the first goal of the 2019 Alice Springs Education Declaration is that the Australian education system promotes both excellence and equity, ensuring all children and young people have access to high-quality education that's free from discrimination and addresses barriers to learning. Kitty, how close are we to achieving that goal at present? I don't think it would come to a surprise, uh, as a surprise to anyone to say that, that we're a fair way off. But it's really important to have that up front as a goal and to be really explicit that what we want is um, you know, high standards for all children and young people, but also therefore, you know, the supports in place that enable children and young people who face challenges to, to be able to meet those, those high expectations. So, Jen, I'm wondering if you could describe for us the early childhood education and care, particularly in low-income or high-poverty contexts. How are we doing there? So, we're not doing very well. It- may come as a surprise to you that there are a phrase that I uh, borrowed from Kitty that Kitty coined many, many years ago. There's a significant minority of very young children who are excluded from education and care or who are expelled from early childhood settings. That's a pretty tough start uh, to be expelled or not accepted into your first year of school. And I have to say, I find it incredibly shocking that not all children can get a place in uh, the first year of school and that not all children are able to be accommodated in our early childhood service system in spite of government commitment to 15 hours of preschool delivered by early childhood teachers. So that is a, a, a very small number of children, but nonetheless, it's pretty surprising in a country of our wealth and in the sort of knowledge that we hold around how to support young children who are finding life 
challenging and who don't have enough resources for their well-being. Jen, I, I think that example of children and young people who are excluded from, from school and from early care settings is so important because it really highlights the incredibly difficult circumstances that these children and their families face. Education is, is, is compulsory uh, from age, you know, four or five to age, you know, 17 or so. And yet, as a system, certain children and young people are excluded. And that just, re- even if it's only a small number, that just really highlights the significance of how far we are from, from achieving that lofty goal of the, um, the Alice Springs Declaration. I agree with that. You know, the children I'm talking about here are not children whose parents can't afford to pay for childcare. So we do have significant numbers of those in Australia as well. So around 300,000 um, families can't afford early childhood services. The children I'm talking about here are children who are excluded from, the, you know, there are a number of free services and of full subsidised places. These are children who, in spite of those subsidies and places, are still not accepted. So that is pretty concerning. And I think it it shows how that educational exclusion, that lack of equity, uh, starts so early and it starts so soon for families with young children. So, Jim, when we're talking about that lack of access to early childhood services, are we talking here about preschool, about four-year-olds, for example, or are we talking about that beginning much earlier for children in infancy and in, in very early childhood? What age group are we talking about here? Uh, so I'm particularly talking about four-year-olds because that's where there is uh, government funded and there is government commitment to universal early childhood education. So the government subsidises and funds 15 hours of early childhood education for all Australian children. Some of that uh, depends where it's delivered. Sometimes if it's through a childcare centre, there are subsidies that can be made to equal the fee that the centre sets or in lots of preschools it's not up front and that's uh, subsidised through state, the state governments. And the children that I'm talking about who are excluded or expelled often have challenging behaviours or they are not able to be accommodated in the ratios because their physical needs are so high that it is challenging for centres to have them on the premises. So it seems to me that the challenging behaviours is a bigger problem for the sector than a child who maybe needs peg feeding or tube feeding. The challenging behaviours seem to be where the families can't get a place or get expelled pretty quickly. And, you know, I have to say when you're in a space where there are children who have difficulty self-regulating and you can see the ratios of children. It's not all that unimaginable. Like the, um, you know, I was in a in a childcare centre uh, a few weeks ago where a child lost control and began throwing uh, outdoor climbing equipment, so planks and ladders, and the educators had to calm the child down and continue delivering education to. Um, 20 children. So that is a significant challenge for educators. And it depends on how the service is set up, like how the training of the educators and the spaces that they have available to them to accommodate a child who's learning to self-regulate being in a group like that. So we're starting to think more about how what's needed beyond ratios and subsidies to be able to accommodate all children. And I think that that's something that schools have also had to consider in recent times. And it's certainly something that as policy changes towards more inclusive education principles is going to become bigger and bigger issues in schools. Uh, Because helping children who have a lot of difficulty self-regulating is a a skill. Uh, It's a very significant skill. And knowing how to manage uh, other children and continue with high quality learning while that is happening is part of the challenge in those early years settings. 
Kitty, I'd be really interested to know how much of these challenges of educational access uh, continue beyond the primary school and the early childhood context. I understand that at high school we still see children missing out. Uh, before COVID, the Australia Institute for Teaching and Learning Leadership reported that the attendance rates were around 92% in Year 7 students and dropped to around about 89% in Year 10, with about a quarter of the students missing a month of school during the school year. What do we know about absence from school in a high school context and which groups are most likely to be absent from school? Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and I think this is really important. At the moment, a lot of what we're talking about is around the idea of, of even having access, equitable access to education, let alone, you know, what the quality of that education looks like. And, and attendance is a really big part of that. So we know that traditionally um, attendance drops off after the transition from primary school to secondary school. Um, and then trends, tends to keep dropping through the junior high school years, so, you know, year seven to year 10 in, in most places. During COVID, um, some, some colleagues at the University of Queensland um, and I published a, an article earlier this year looking at Tasmanian data, which showed that students from low SES backgrounds did not bounce back as well in terms of attendance after the, the lockdowns early in the pandemic as students from um, higher socioeconomic backgrounds. And so they were whole, you know, there was already a gap <laughs> between the, the you know the much lower attendance by students from, from disadvantaged backgrounds compared to more privileged backgrounds. And that gap widened as a result of the pandemic. So that is a significant concern. Mm. So between the two of you so far, you've mapped out uh, a landscape of concern with with students who are having difficulty accessing education in both early and primary contexts as well as secondary school. Kitty, I wonder if you can take us through uh, what options for alternative education are available in the Australian context. And I'm thinking particularly when our mainstream educational system can't meet the needs of, of the students, of, of a good proportion of their students. What, what are the options and which young people might benefit from an alternative form of education? I want to start by upfront saying that in an ideal world, your local school would cater for every young person and child in you know in that neighborhood uh, but we know that we're not in an ideal world and you know as Jen indicated that is not about you know blaming the workers in in um, early childhood settings and and schools um, it's about recognizing that often uh, particularly uh, centers and schools in the most disadvantaged communities just don't have the, the professional learning development and the resources that they need to be able to cater for every child and young person. And so that means that if the mainstream can't cater for everyone, then we do need some alternatives. And those alternatives, there are, there are alternative schools available for children from more privileged families. And that might be because they are schools that are based on a particular philosophy like, like Steiner or Montessori um, or that come from a democratic tradition and they often charge reasonably high fees. Um, what we're interested here, I think, is the type of alternative schools that, that offer a, a second chance and often a last chance for those kind of young people who have been excluded or for whom school just really hasn't worked. And over the past decade or so, there's been quite a growth in those kind of settings around the country. There are alternative programs in many public high schools within the school, but there are also quite a lot of those kind of alternative schools that are actually in um, the independent sector um, as schools for special purposes. And look, it's 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 hard it's hard to say who they're for because I don't want to be uh, you know stereotyping young people. Uh, but with that proviso, you know, often it is young people who have faced really challenging personal circumstances. For example. Um, 
they're in out-of-home care and they might have moved from one family to another several times and therefore from one school to another. And as a result, have quite a few gaps that schools just aren't able to address. Um, it might be young people who've got learning difficulties or, or mental health issues. It might be um, young parents where, again, schools often aren't very well set up for a mum or dad who wants to bring, you know, a little kid along. It might be young people who've been through the youth justice system and um, schools often resist enrolling those young people. And what my research has shown is that these these alternative schools or, or flexi schools are very good at changing the offer, changing the way they do school to suit the young person rather than expecting a young person to fit in with however mainstream school you know, does schooling by default. I'm interested in um, picking up on that. I think that it's very, it is really important to resist uh, the sort of stereotyping that happens around vulnerability and categories that are associated with increased vulnerabilities or school failure. They're very important for funding, but they're not important for pedagogy. You know, kiddies resisting naming those categories because when schools or early childhood services, any educational um, institution directs learning at a category of person, they miss the nuances of that person. And young people are very, very attuned to teaching and learning that misses their life experience. So what we have in early childhood in particular, and I think that the alternative education sector has it as well, is a in early childhood our um, curriculum framework is called Being, Belonging and Becoming. And it attends to the circumstances of the child's everyday life, the community of people that they belong to and where they want to head. And um, that's an incredibly good framework for engaging with young children, engaging with any children and engaging with young um, adolescents who haven't always had that experience in school. I think Part of the problem with trying to operationalise those kind of ideas in both early childhood school and the alternative education setting is that we're not great in Australia at talking about poverty. We don't acknowledge that there are things like food. I mean, you do on this podcast, but often we don't in general discourse talk about food insecurity. We don't talk about housing insecurity. We don't talk much about intergenerational trauma. And when we blindside those huge conditions of young people's lives, education can appear irrelevant to to most uh, young people. And I mean, it, I would say that that extends to early childhood as well. Children are very attuned to where everything in an education setting looks completely different and all the rules are completely different to what happens at home. So there's a sort of lack of alignment between what's on offer in the education system and what children's everyday lives are like. Uh, and I think that we have to think a lot more about resourcing shortages in young people's homes and how to align with that and deliver resources that, that um, help raise the level of resources in children's homes so that it becomes closer to their better off counterparts so a system can actually cater to those uh, young people. So if a child has very few books at home but potentially might have the type of books that are on sale at the checkout in the local shopping centre, those books that are on sale in the local shopping centre become very important literacy tools for that child. They may not be what your local library would consider the best possible form of literature, uh, but nonetheless there's a connection between the child's home and uh, what's on offer in the early childhood service and that becomes settling for children. It becomes something they can engage with. It becomes a safe place that they can go to. Um, so I think that we really have to think much more carefully about children's home lives and their families and I think we have to also look for the strengths in those families and align ourselves with those strengths. So the challenge of a child aligning themselves to a, a, a completely, you know, weird and, and different school system is is lessened and that that 
supports a lot of these issues about self-regulation, wanting to be there, wanting to engage with the materials that are on offer in those education settings. Jen, I think those issues are so important and that misalignment that you're talking about, I see again and again in the research that I do with children. But, but Kitty, I'd love to hear from you on this. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, there's so much there, Jen, but a couple of things I, I'd like to pick up. Um, well, one is you know, that real value that you started with in, in early childhood around a real focus on, on, on each individual child. And you know, in the in the the HL standards for teachers, the first standard is to know your students. And that is so important. But I think we also recognise that it's very difficult for teachers, and particularly teachers in high schools, to really get to know all of their students really well, um, including you know, all those kind of uh, backgrounds around their home, home lives. I really agree with recognising the, the richness and, and not falling into the trap of, you know, seeing a kind of a, a, a deficit, for example, in the kind of literature that people do have um, at, at, at home, but recognising the kind of funds of knowledge that all families and, and children and young people can, can bring to their learning, uh, whether that's school learning or out-of-school learning. And, and finally, that comment that, of course, People do face really significant challenges at times to, to do, you know, with poverty and, and, and with housing and with job insecurity. And so coming back to, you know, the title of that article that Bessel Bernstein published in the 1970s, and it still just strikes me as so true, uh, the title was, you know, Education Cannot Compensate for Society. Yeah, it's such a good comment, isn't it, Kitty? You know, one of one of the things that when this idea of knowing your students well, I think, takes us to one of the key problems in the education sectors, and that's ratios. Uh, you need, um, if you're dealing with a range of different knowledges that children bring to school, if you're dealing with some children whose basic needs aren't being met, if you're dealing with some children who find self-regulating in the kind of, you know, we're never put together with so many strange people as we are in school. Um, in For the entire rest of our lives, we have much more choice over who we hang around with. So the, the challenge of that is enormous for um, children too. And what we see in early childhood settings is that the ratios are not enough to work with all the complexities of working with children in high poverty contexts and get to know the families well enough. So there's funding available for a range of uh, inclusion needs. There's funding available for um, children with disability. There's funding available for cultural brokerage for um, children from refugee backgrounds, for example. But not every family walks in that door uh, ready to be to have their child diagnosed and the funding is reliant on those diagnoses so you can have a period of time where you get an extra worker but then you have to move through the process of getting a formal diagnosis and that for many families is incredibly confronting and frightening and can go against the grain of how they understand what it is to be human how they understand their child and it's uh, it's it works much better if those processes are very slow and careful and done in real partnership and and not the type of partnership which tells the parent what they need to do to get the best for their child but the type of partnership that works with the family to identify what is needed for the child what the parents see in the child so that you approach the child and their friends in a way that is aligned with with how that child understands themselves. So there's problems with the way that we do inclusion from the start, I think, and we don't spend enough money or t and that means that people have less time to bring families gently and carefully into a caring education system. So people don't have the experience from the beginning that this is a safe place for their child and for them and that their child will thrive and grow. And 
from a lot of the work that I've done with older uh, young people, and I know this aligns with your work as well, Sharon, and yours, Kitty, um, that young people take their confidence in the system, in schools, in teachers. They read a lot from their families about whether that's a safe place to be or not. Um, so if we want children to make the most of the resources we, you know, the public money we put into education, we need to shape it so that it so that it can be leveraged at its absolute best by children and their families. Mm. I have to say the two of you are doing the most amazing job of mapping the humanity that it might be central in creating uh, better access uh, in these circumstances. But we're going to have to take a really short break and we'll be back very shortly. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Jen Scalabo and Professor Kitty Terrell, and we're talking about some of the challenges that children, young people, and their families face in accessing and having the best experience of education from preschool all the way through the, the education system. Jen, one of the real challenges that preschools and schools across the board face is how those institutions, and of course schools are institutions, are able to support children who either have a, dis a disability or have a range of, of either learning challenges or what are seen as challenging behaviours. And this often becomes particularly an issue when poverty and disability or behavioural issues intersect. And, of course, we're also seeing a growing number of children with, with a range of different diagnoses. What does all of this mean for teaching and learning in terms of how the system functions and, and how children who are diagnosed very early with particular issues, and you've just talked before the break about that pathway towards diagnosis, what does all of that mean for teaching and learning once a, once a child has a diagnosis? So I think that if, if I can give you an example of me in a preschool uh, recently, it might be helpful. So, so I enter the preschool, I sit in the block area, which has always, always been my favourite space. Children flock to anyone who, who's not actually a member of staff because they can see that you're going to be focused on them, not on everything else that's going on. And um, so I've got a group of about 10 children around me quite quickly. And and then I hear a sound that is like a piercing scream uh, coming from across the room that I decode fairly quickly to a child screaming, I want to die, I want to die. It's pretty alarming. I look up and there is a child hurtling from wall to wall around the one unit, like one room play space that has 20 children in it. Now, the children near me, also, well, actually children all around the room and me, sit up like meerkats, like what is going on? Are we all right? My instinct is to stretch my arms. Their instinct is to crawl into my arms. And the child comes kind of hurtling through the area, breaking buildings as he goes, goes across to the room. And then something very seamless happened that I took, took me a couple of times to watch to see what had happened. But he ends up outside with a, uh, a single worker and he took maybe an hour, an hour and a half to 
calm down and be able to come back and join the play. So what does that mean? That means that, well, I mean, a couple of things happened. There was a, a bunch of other little boys playing in, the, in another corner of the room who instantly fall to the floor and start having, you know, joyful, delighted kick fights with each other. There's a couple of other kids in the room who start rocking and having, you know, clearly a traumatised response to the level of distress that was going on. Staff go straight to the children who are, so you've got one staff member outside, you've got one staff member with one child who's having a trauma response, another staff member to another child who's having a trauma response and someone else trying to get the delighted wrestlers back on into into a space where they weren't likely to hurt each other. So the whole incident takes, you know, for the child to come down, it takes a couple of hours, which you know, surprised me. It also took 20 or 30 minutes to calm down the other children in the room so that they can then go back to their play. Um, Now, their play is their time of deep learning. For many of those children, it's their time where learning is resourced for them. And the resources are there to, 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 to resonate with where they're at developmentally. They're there to resonate with what they've got at home. Many children in this setting don't share a first language, so they're learning that vocabulary that we know is really important for young children. During that half-hour period where the staff are calming children down, no one is supporting language development. So there's huge disruption around the learning that's going on in those settings. When those settings are bigger, when there's more staff, when there's uh, even more children, there are different options to allow greater continuity of learning to happen for the group while the child who's in the most distress is receiving the care that, in this case, he needed. There are absolutely the frameworks available for, for teachers to work very well with children like him. You know, I've watched a couple of children over a period of a year completely learn how to regulate their distress over time so it's not a fixed it's not a fixed response that's always going to be a problem but it needs some very intensive support for a period and i think it's about ratios really that like is there enough people to manage the challenge of these children who've got behaviors that disrupt learning and and then to get the other children back on track so they can learn as well. And one of the things that I've increasingly realized is when you have high quality early childhood settings in high poverty areas, they have a huge number of uh, kids with disability enrolling well over the national average. So there is some work uh, that suggests there should be um, ratios where the number of children with disabilities and challenging behaviours is um, equivalent to the sort of nat- the average in the population. I'm not convinced by that. I think it's a specialist thing and actually clustering children isn't a bad thing. But you certainly need enough space and enough expertise to, to if, if the children, if the cohort as a whole is going to get high-quality learning. Um, and we do know about uh, learning, student learning, is that it is very much affected by the level of learning in the cohort. So the cohort matters. Jen's done a fantastic job here of describing the sorts of context that, that early childhood educating, uh, educators are going through and the sort of challenges that, that are arising in this context. And she's also mapped, I think, some of the ways in which the problems can be solved. I'm wondering if you might like to comment on these issues in the high school context, um, particularly dealing with challenging behaviours and then the resources and structures around uh, offering adequate support for these students to get the best out of their education. Yes, one of the things I found really interesting in that example um, that Jen just gave of her experience was was that kind of juggling of the, the the rights of of that one student who really needs or young person or child who really needs the additional support with the rights of the majority of students or children or young people to you know to have a high quality experience and what tends to happen in high schools in secondary settings 
is that there's a lot of pressure to prioritize the majority over the minority. Um, and we've heard in our research, school principals in, in mainstream schools explicitly say that they understand that every child has a right to be in school and, in fact, has a legal obligation to be in school. But why do they have to be in my school? Because the pressure on, on teachers and on principals in high schools is, is huge in terms of uh, their reputation, in terms of you know, all those standardized tests of you know, NEPLAN and ATAR scores, in terms of the expectations of the majority of parents for their kids. And so often it is that student who needs additional support who ends up m- missing out, n- not because staff don't care, but because of all all this kind of mix of, of pressures. And one thing that I think is really important for, you know, for policy and systems as, as well as school leadership to do it is to step back and, and to look both at the moral responsibility that we have to, to every child and young person, but also if, you know, if that's more convincing for some people, you know, a, a really hard-nosed look at the costs. You know, we have a real opportunity for, for learning, whether it's in childcare settings or, or, or schools, to be a circuit breaker in context of disadvantage that leads to incredible fiscal and social dollar savings down the track. So why aren't we investing in the resourcing, the professional learning, the space, the ratios that are needed to provide that extra support to those young people who really need it. So I think, Kitty, what's interesting to me is that you've got this higher proportion of, you know, it's it's the health gradient. Uh, so in high poverty contexts, you actually do have a higher proportion of people with disability and um, and trauma and a range of associated conditions. But we've got a school system, like policy architecture, that is based on the idea of school choice. Um, so what, you know, you began at the beginning by putting in a caveat that even though alternative education isn't your, well, you said, I think, that alternative education isn't your ultimate vision it's a step towards equitable education. So while we've got a school choice policy framework, um, what that means is that children with disability and with challenging behaviours are going to become even more concentrated in certain schools and that, you know, that's the principal who, who doesn't want those, who wants those children to have education but not to be against the pressure of um, of what school choice means for their NAPLAN results, for their enrolment figures and for what they can ultimately deliver in the school. The other thing that I'm increasingly thinking about is the specialisation that it takes to work with children with autism and bring them back from, you know, highly distressed states into much more learning states. There's a there's a there's an expertise there. And how does that expertise sit alongside pedagogical expertise? And there's lots of models from overseas around co-teaching that look at classroom content is delivered to diverse students in a class by a special education teacher who works very collaboratively through planning, assessment and reflection with a either a methods teacher in high school or a, a generalist classroom teacher in primary school. And between the two of them, they're able to deliver high quality education to all the children in the class with the expertise they need in, in working with, you know, different diagnoses, autism, Asperger's, range of conditions, and deliver the academic content that we know puts young people, sets young people up for workforce participation, but but also for many, many other important things, joyful lives, decent lives, contributing, being contributing community members. Um, so school choice is one of the policy architectures that really gets in the way, I think. And the other thing when I look at this overseas research about co-teaching is there's no there's no mandate in Australia for the needs of students with disability to be met by teachers in their classroom. The 
teacher can employ an external provider who comes in and may deliver a great program to those students but isn't there working with the classroom teachers to improve that classroom practice and it isn't focused on integrating students with diverse needs into being a community member with the other students. And surely if we want to live in a democracy, we need to be able to live in community with people who are different. So I think that there's a few really key uh, policy architectures that inhibit us being able to move to that ideal that you were talking about. And I think you mentioned Finland at the beginning, the sort of ideal that the child goes to their local school. So that's their framework there. And the local school needs to provide for the local children. This has been such a a rich and important conversation and and we're going to have to start to to draw it to an end, unfortunately. Um, Jen, I I did want to say in some of the research that we're doing at the moment, um, we asked a group of of young people in high school what they would think about co-teaching, about having two teachers in the classroom at the same time and the response was that that would be fantastic because there would be an extra person to help me out when I need the help there would be an extra person to listen to me Um, there would be an extra person to be there for me so I think you know from children's perspectives too having more than one teacher in the room is often a very good thing but in all of the issues that you've mapped out so beautifully I think we've got a number of challenges going on one is the way in which NAPLAN results, test scores and so on are driving particular decisions on the part of school leaders. And there are another set of issues that are perhaps intertwined but sometimes separate around behaviours in classrooms that may be seen as either problematic or even putting other children at risk. And this is a really complex question that I'm going to ask but ask for a a relatively um, brief response. Should we ever be using suspension and expulsion as a tool or do we need to think differently about how we structure and manage schools so that that those strategies become obsolete? Kitty, perhaps you could begin with your thoughts on, on that. That is such an important thing to raise. And yes, we could spend an entire podcast just on that question. There is extensive research evidence that shows that in the end, suspension and expulsion targets children from particular cultu- cultural backgrounds disproportionately and reinforces the school to prison pipeline and does not, in fact, address the, you know what what I refer to as behavioural difficulties in in the child. I mean, I would say it's probably behavioural difficulties in the school. It doesn't address those at all, but often makes them worse because when a child is absent from school for some time and then comes back and has to both catch up on, you know, what they've missed out on, um, as well as find their place, um, their social place in, in the classroom again. That, that's just asking an awful lot of a young person, particularly when that young person is usually already um, facing difficult circumstances. And if I can just add one more thing to that, that's again why I am so interested in inflexible and alternative programs. And I think mainstream schools can learn a lot from how those programs and schools operate where on the whole they tend not to use suspension um, and and expulsion but have alternative strategies. And so a little plug here for people to have a look at the website of the Australian Association for Flexible and Inclusive Education. These are the people who work with those young people um, all the time and have really, really good strategies um, that can equally apply in more mainstream high school settings. Jen, I wonder what your thoughts are on that issue. My thoughts, Sharon, are that you need to do a podcast on that particular issue, partly because that is policy. That is coming into New South Wales as policy from the beginning of 2023. Uh, It's potentially going to cause a crisis in schools, will probably be a workforce crisis, because what we're seeing is teachers leaving schools in droves for a whole lot of reasons, but having feeling feeling like you are like having to work with students with challenging behaviours when you're not adequately resourced to do it is 
incredibly disempowering. I think that in some ways the workforce crisis that we're looking at now and the policy changes that we're looking at now are going to trigger a change in schools and they're going to have to trigger a change in the resourcing in schools because too much is asked of teachers and too little is delivered to students. So, you know, lots the alternative schools, most of them don't expel or suspend students. They're, they're, they're able to deliver the, the supports that students, the good ones that students need to, and that students can, um, you know, really turn around how they feel about their own capacities. So I do think that schools, you know, kitties, Spot on. Schools have got a huge amount to learn from the alternative education sector. But one of the key differences in that sector and the mainstream system is how many people and how involved with the community they are. And that is something that currently the way that schools are resourced is is not nearly as possible. But, you know, there's also great things happening in schools. There is a lot more um in situ, site-based professional learning where whole teams are addressing issues as a group and that is critical to good co-teaching and it's critical, I think, to school cultures of inclusion. You can't change a culture if everyone goes off and does an online professional learning course, you know, (laughs) separately. So, you know, schools are dynamic, they're changing places, but there's a lot of change that needs to happen for them to be able to accommodate 21st century issues, you know, the the, what is the knowledge that we need to know? That's a massive question. Um, how do we deal with these incredible increases of diagnoses around ADHD, autism, Asperger's, anxiety? Like they're, they're 21st century uh, conditions, you know. So there's a lot of challenges for schools and I think that until we embrace a much more democratic system like Finland where teachers are paid better, Schools have got tighter boundaries and the expectations are very, very clear on schools to be delivering to everyone. Um, I think that we're, we're going to be in trouble, but I think we're already in trouble. So good on the teachers for striking um, because I think that draws attention to the workforce crisis that is absolutely looming. Jen Skadabal, Kitty Tareel, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, thank you so much for mapping out some of the issues that we are facing in terms of building a system that genuinely delivers an excellent and equitable uh, education for children. I I did just want to add for our listeners, this is one episode in a bundle that we're doing at the moment around education. And please join us in another week when we take this conversation further. We look at some of these issues from teachers' perspectives and we particularly focus on what's happening in Finland and whether we can look to Finland um, as a model for Australia. But for today, Jen and Kitty, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation on such a critically important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Anna Greta, I thought that was an amazing conversation. And, of course, the points that Kitty and Jen were making, I see coming up again and again in the research that I do. But I would really love to hear your thoughts because um, I think perhaps you've got a little bit of distance on this that that I don't have, and and I'd love to hear what, what you thought of all of that. Well, look, the first thing to say is it's such an important issue and I'm sure every single listener, particularly listeners who've had children going through early childhood or primary or secondary school education, uh, the stories that have been told today will resonate, whether it's been a relative or a friend who's been through some of those situations with challenging behaviour or whether it's been an issue that's been uh, come up in the school environment. We know that this is a factor across our community. But you're right, this is well outside my area of expertise. And so take Taking a step or two backwards, I was struck about the importance of narrative and Jennifer gave some fabulous stories that helped to describe the challenges, but also that acknowledgement that young people, uh, you know, that the lives of young people and their education occurs in the context of their broader life, their relationships, their family, and that importance of listening to people and understanding who they are. It's so important in healthcare. And as we talked over several weeks about the challenges in healthcare, uh, listening to people and learning from their stories is such an important part of our healthcare sector and one that we undervalue. And it strikes me that we see a similar issue arising uh, with not quite listening to stories with the appreciation that we need. 
Or perhaps the other way to think about that is that if we resource and appreciate narrative and start to understand just how important that family and social context is for education, for healthcare, for the other social policy areas, that we might find that it offers offers us some solutions to the major challenges that we have. The other thing that struck me was the conversation that we I had with Tim Hollow and Catherine Trebek while you were away, uh, and that was the issues around economics and the drive within an, our neoliberal system towards efficiency and that there is little in the way of redundancy. And again, we see this as a major challenge in the healthcare sector uh, and in so many parts of our of our professional world where there aren't people who are there to, to pick up the slack or to, to help us with crisis during times of challenge. And again, we see that economic uh, model uh, play out in the health, in the education sector, where we don't have the additional teachers or the additional ancillary staff that may really make a big difference for students who are having, having challenges at home or during their educational process. So the, the two issues to me were around narrative and then the impact of the neoliberal economics and the opportunity we have for framing through the value of care, again, using care and allowing a care framework uh, to inform our decision-making for resource allocation, for time, for attention to the built environment in the schools that we create, and making sure that all of the children who are in our education system are, are adequately cared for in a way that gives them the best set up for life. I think there's such important reflections, Anna Greta, and the one thing that strikes me in the research that I do, in the literature around this, and in listening to Kitty and Jen, is that so often schools are expected to pick up and resolve really fundamentally challenging issues that are too hard for anyone else in society to pick up on. You know, you talked about the the problems that have come out of the dominant neoliberal agenda that we have seen in place for over 40 years globally and in Australia now. Um, we also have you know, kind of issues of, of financialised capital and financialised services and the focus on either profitability or the focus on particular and often very narrow measures of success and that's led to a particular type of education system but also the expectation that that schools will just somehow absorb all of these problems that we see across society broadly and resolve them and do so with very very limited resources but the other issue that that I would would make here is was one that you picked up on Anna Greta and that is the importance of care and of relationships um, and the one thing that I hear again and again in the research that I do with children and young people is just how important care is of wanting to be cared for, wanting to be listened to, and also wanting to have the opportunity to care for others. But the way the school system is operating, it's very different, for, very difficult for that care to come about. And I also hear from teachers how much they want to care for the students. Most teachers go into teaching because they care and yet we've structured a system in a way that doesn't support them and often doesn't even allow them to be able to do that. And I think the third and the final point that I'd make is the importance of listening to young people and to children in all of this and to, to better understanding and to learn, to, to better understanding what they think is meaningful learning one of the things that I often hear from young people is they don't understand why they have to learn certain things that are on the curriculum and that there are other things around life skills that they would really want to learn. But often we, we simply exclude children um, and exclude young people when we're de developing the curriculum. But we would end up with a much stronger approach if we listened to the kinds of knowledge that they feel they need now and for their futures and Jen used a phrase that where I think she referred to joyful education and what a wonderful thing it would be if we could transform education, not only to be a good experience, to produce good outcomes, but to be joyful for children. And for most children, we're a long way from that at the moment. 
What an amazing place to leave the conversation. And I'm so looking forward to next week's further discussion of the education system. We will, of course, leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes uh, on policyforum.net. We always love hearing feedback from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or you can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. You type that into the Facebook search bar. We will be back next week with more discussions about the education system and the challenges that are faced here in Australia. But for now, from me, Undergreta Hunter, I'll look forward to seeing you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.